I'm a bit of a wuss when it comes to pain. I don't like pain or discomfort at all. Just ask Shari. She rolls her eyes anytime I start to feel sick because she knows I'm gonna act like a baby for a while. I don't remember where I heard this, but I think it's true. There are only three groups of people at any given time. Uh, the first group is either entering into a season of testing, or the second group is in the middle of a test, or the third group is coming out of a season of testing, kind of into the clearing, to which by definition, you'll soon be entering the first group. From my experience, I know that it's true. You know, life is hard and there seems to always be something. And part of growing up and having maturity is knowing how to handle pain when life hurts. And our lesson in James this morning will help us learn how to grow when we experience setbacks, suffering, loss, tragedy, pain, test, trials of all kinds. It doesn't feel great in the moment, but I know what James is sharing with us is absolutely true and it is helpful if we can learn to practice um, these four disciplines that he gives us. So let's get right to it. If you have a Bible, let's go to James chapter one. And if you've got the Bible app, you can turn uh, there. We've got a link in this video that takes you straight to the notes that we prepare um, for our time. James one, we'll start in verse two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Did you hear the trash truck outside? Don't they know I'm trying to preach a sermon? Come on. <laughs> There's actually quite a bit in this chunk of text and uh, in the interest of remaining simple, we're gonna focus on four imperatives that we find here. Count, know, let, and ask. I like that James gives really practical, concrete things to do here, because often when there's pain or a loss or tragedy or testing of any kind, you feel powerless and out of control. Uh, I know in my life when, when that's happened, I wish there was maybe an undo button or a rewind button or a DeLorean that I could jump in and go back and change things. And you, I often struggle with just feeling out of control and powerless when there's pain and when there's tough situations. What James teaches us, he gives us a gift because there are things you can do 
when you are in a situation that is tough and you feel out of control. The first is you can count. Count it all joy. You can choose to have a joyful attitude when testing comes. Second, you can know, you can have an understanding heart and mind that you will grow during this. Third, you can let, you can surrender your will to God's will and allow Him to work in and through you. And finally, you can ask. You can pray to God and ask for wisdom on what to do. So let's uh, circle back and go to that first one. Count. Count it all joy when you encounter trials. Not if you encounter, but when. I love how the scripture is so honest about what we should expect in our life. The, the, The principle here of counting it joy is your outlook determines your outcome. I am not very athletic. And a long time ago, I made the mistake of uh, becoming a mountain biker with my friends who were big time um, mountain bikers. They were really tough and physically fit. And so I bought the shoes and the special pants that have the padding in the butt so that your butt doesn't hurt when you ride. And, and I got a really nice bike and, and all these things. And I made the mistake of like going for it. And I got the shoes that you clip in to the special pedals so that if you fall off the bike, you're clipped into the bike and there's like no escape route. It was awful. The whole time that I rode the mountain bike, I was worried and afraid of falling off. Um, Because where we were riding in O.P. Schnabel Park, there's a lot of rocks, a lot of cliffs, and and I had seen and heard stories of people falling and breaking their hands or their wrists. At the time, I was a worship leader, and so I needed my both hands uh, to do my job, and I was a graphic designer, and I needed my hands, and I, all I could think about when I was riding this mountain bike is what if I fall? I'm gonna brace my fall with my hands. I could probably break these things because they're not huge and strong, and then how will I do my job? And, and it was awful. One of the things I would do is I would look down when I'm riding, like at my pedals, because I would see this big rock and I wanted to make sure that I cleared the rock or I missed the rock or that my pedals didn't hit the rock and then throw me off. And I rode timid and I rode with my vision down. And my friends kept trying to tell me, Drew, you've got to put your vision forward. You, You have to look where you want to go. You can't look where you are already or where you've been. And you gotta pick your line. And they were totally right, but I couldn't do it because I was afraid of falling off that dumb mountain bike. I ended up selling that sucker and cashing out of my investment because I, I just couldn't do it. And the principle there is your outlook determines your outcome. Where you look determines often how you feel, how you process things, whether you fall off or not. This phrase that, that James gives us, count. It's actually a financial term. Think of the word accounting. Like we have an accountant whose job is to look at the whole picture, to step back, to assess the valuation, to let us know if we're in trouble or if we're doing well. That's what James is saying here. Count it all joy. Step back and do kind of an audit of the situation and look for the value. Look for the return on investment that you will get from this trial. Now, if you value the short view of life and you value the things of this earth over heavenly things, trials will make you bitter. 
because you will value these trials and see these trials as a, as a wet blanket to hamper your joy on this earth. But if you're a heavenly accountant and you value the long view and you value the things of heaven over the things of earth, trials will make you not bitter, but better. Come on, I'm a pastor, I've gotta, I've gotta do stuff like that. Trials will make you better if you take the long view because you will see them as a means of purifying you and helping you to become less like you and more like Christ. This is Paul's sentiment in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's a great chapter to memorize, 2 Corinthians 4. The second thing you can do is you can know. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's amazing that sometimes people of faith have a hard time with their faith being tested. I know I've felt like that many times. But here's the deal. Faith, by definition, if it's faith, has to be tested or it's not faith. Why does faith have to be tested? There's at least two reasons why faith has to be tested. First, it proves to us that we are in fact trusting in Christ instead of ourselves or our circumstances. The testing of our faith also produces something extremely valuable to any follower of Jesus that is necessary, steadfastness. Now, you get special points if you have used the word steadfastness this week because it's not a word most of us use every day. But steadfastness is a crucial word in term for any follower of Jesus. What is steadfastness? I like how Eugene Peterson defines steadfastness various times in his message translation. He calls it Passionate patience. Think of that. Passionate patience. The testing of your faith, if you let it, will produce a passionate patience in your life. Now, steadfastness isn't being a doormat. Steadfastness isn't kind of passive aggressively allowing bad things to happen to you. Steadfastness is a passionate sense of patience where you are passionately waiting on the Lord. You're finding your refuge in Him. It's, it really takes a lot of courage to stand and wait and weather the storm and stand against the schemes of the enemy. That is no small thing. That is not nothing. Steadfastness is actually very crucial to our walk with the Lord and our maturity. Impatience is a huge sign of childishness. Have you ever been around a small child who was patient and could wait? I do not know of this child. Think of all of the ways lacking patience brings harm. In the scriptures, Abraham, Moses, Jacob made a living out of this. David, even Peter are massive biblical examples of people who did not know how to passionately wait on God. Instead, they took things into their own hands and eventually caused greater pain. I mean, would Jacob, we even use his name to say, oh, someone is Jacobing. Or we say, hey, don't Jacob, which is a term of saying, hey, slow down and stop making it happen. 
Passionate patience, steadfastness is so crucial in your faith journey. Here's kind of the the tough news. There's only one way to develop steadfastness and high character. You can't gain it by listening to me talk about it right now. You can't gain it by doing a study on the Greek and Hebrew definitions of the word. You have to go through pain, testing, and trials to develop steadfastness. It's like riding a bike. You can't learn to ride a bike without riding a bike. You have to, at some point, get on the bike, risk the fall, put your vision forward, stop looking down at the rocks, and go. Passionate patience, steadfastness, this thing that is crucial to the developing of our character and our growth and our maturity and our health in Christ only comes through the refining fire, uh, seasons of tough pain, trials, and testings. Now, if your faith is being tested and you're having a hard time coping with it, like I often do, remember this classic coffee cup verse in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's a reason why that verse is on a lot of bumper stickers or coffee cups or Christian t-shirts. It's true and it's so good. The third thing we can do is let. We can let steadfastness have its full effect. One of the things I appreciate about the Lord, is he's not, he's not a salesman. He doesn't manipulate. He's a gentleman. Because of this, we have the responsibility of giving God permission to do his life-changing work in our lives. You know, the Holy Spirit is seen as a dove, not some like rat with wings, some raven or some eagle that is just gonna swoop in and exert his power over you. That is not the character of God. That is not the character of the Holy Spirit. He's a gentleman. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't control in those ways. He leads with love. His greatest gift is space and time. One of his greatest gifts is space and time. And so God can't build your character without your consent and cooperation. Some of you right now are going through hell. You're going through a hard time. And while it may not have originated from heaven, It may be a clear spiritual attack from the evil one. Uh, God won't waste that stuff, and he wants to use this to grow you and to mature you and to take you out of your childish and immature ways, but you have to consent. You have to cooperate. One of my uh, spiritual mentors, uh, Mary Ann, she used to always say, Drew, uh, God will pull you through if you don't mind the pulling and I was, I was like, yeah, I want God to pull me through, but I mind the pulling. I don't like the pain. I'm, I'm a wuss. God, like every parent, wants his children to grow and mature. But unlike us sometimes, God doesn't overparent. Parents sometimes risk doing too much for their kids, effectively sheltering them from the realities of life and not equipping them with the tools they need to succeed. But our Heavenly Father would never do that to us. But many Christians have done it to themselves. We're really good at trying to shelter ourselves from the storms of life. Thus, 
remaining spiritual children and not growing up. Many Christians run from hard times and refuse to process the pain and grow from it when, out of all the people, I think followers of Jesus have the resources available to us through the scriptures, through wisdom, through the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit. If there's anybody who can take pain and suffering and trials and loss and trauma and take it and process it for the good of God's kingdom and for the growth of ourself and others, it should be us. Fourth, we can ask if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask god most of the time when people um, ask me to pray for them and they're going through a difficult time i immediately go to you know some prayers of relief or asking god to come in and, and heal and, and remove the pain and that, that's fine i mean that's not a wrong prayer but as i'm studying this i'm convicted that I don't first pray for wisdom. Uh, It would be better to gain wisdom on what is happening and what God is asking of you instead of asking for the pain and discomfort to leave. Um, I wonder how many times I've prayed for people or prayed for myself um, for for a, a storm to pass without first wondering and asking God, is there a purpose in this storm? Is there a purpose in this trial? Now, don't mishear me. Yes, we should pray for relief. We should pray for peace and healing. We should pray for God to deliver us from traumatic situations and from um, a loss that is out of his will. Absolutely. But along with that, why don't we also pray for wisdom? Why don't we first say, Jesus, what do you think about this situation? What do we need to do? We need wisdom so that we don't waste the opportunities that come our way that are meant to grow us up. Those are the four things. Count, know, let, ask. Four practical things to do when you're in a time of testing. Now, that's kind of real classroom-ish. This is good, I mean, it's fine. Um, But the question is, how do we put this into action in our lives? Now, let me tell you a story of when I didn't do this. About, um, I guess it was about 14, 15 years ago. It's in my early 20s. I kind of graduated from my ministry program and I ended up um, going to work for the church that I'd grown up in and that I had loved and that I had really kind of idolized and and really put on a pedestal and went to uh, work for some people that I really looked up to. And I had an awful experience. And it was my first kind of ministry job. And I was so disheartened at um, the unhealth that I saw, the spiritual maturity that I saw on all levels, um, the way um, people were talked about behind the scenes, the way money was handled. Um, I mean, I had um, discovered Uh, pornography on church computers in pastoral offices. I mean, how how does that get on there? Um, I had seen people just uh, manipulated and abused and spiritually and emotionally taken advantage of. I saw just no accountability, uh, no real functioning sense of, uh, of eldership. And it was so disillusioning to me. It was so, so difficult. Uh, It was by far um, in the top 
five most painful seasons of my life. I eventually um, had to leave um, this church, not just working at it, but worshiping at it. I remember Shari and I's last Sunday there, I was on the back row. And, and as I began to hear um, the word of God being used to, to like beat people up and trying to extract more money out of people um, through uh, the, the mechanism of guilt and shame, I got so physically sick, I thought I was gonna throw up. I, I, literally, my stomach started turning, and out of respect for the sanctuary, I got up and left because I thought I was about to throw up, I was starting to gag, and I didn't wanna throw up in the sanctuary. As soon as I got out of the sanctuary, the feeling left. And I, I took that as a, a kind of a leading of the Holy Spirit that this was not a safe place to be anymore broke my heart, broke Shari's heart. In the months following, as I began to process that, and I, I did not have, although I knew James 1, I did not have these four things. I, I did not count this as joy. I did not know that God was gonna use this experience to um, transform my life, to set in motion some really core convictions of how I lead as a pastor. I, I did not um, let the will of God uh, kind of come and be known. I did not pray for wisdom. And as a result, I struggled. There was a season of just wondering, is God even real? I mean, there was like a good six months where I legitimately believed that man had invented God as a way to like manipulate and dominate people to get money out of them. I legitimately believed that. Who, who, who wouldn't come to that conclusion having seen some of the things that I'd seen? And I had this crazy experience where I would be in my room working in my office, my home office at night working, and I would feel the presence of God. I would read the scriptures. I would, uh, I would worship and pray, and I would feel God's presence in undeniable ways. And I eventually came to this point of, of knowing, God, you are real. I know it. But Jesus, I've got a big problem with your church and your people which is an awful conclusion to come through because he gave his life for his bride. He loves his people. He loves his sheep. He lays his life down for the sheep. And I, as I was sharing that with, with, with the Lord, he began to just say, Drew, uh, I feel the same way. And, um, and I want to do something about it. And, and will, you, will you join me? And it was kind of the, the first time I felt called into planting a church. Now that was, God, uh, it's 2020 now, that was 2016, 14 years ago. So much pain, so much relational pain, so much disillusionment. I, I didn't know how to process it. It wasn't until a few years ago that I began to count that situation and other situations like it as joy. And when we moved downtown, I had these grand visions of, um, it's kind of funny to say is, I had these visions of like baptizing witches and drug dealers and gang members, uh, you know, these like, these kind of stereotypical people who were like so far from the Lord. And, and we came downtown just with this very, very um, like strong evangelistic flame. And a lot of the people that we have, um, that have come to our church, and that have joined us in mission have been church people. And almost all of them, church people who are hurt, 
and who have massive wounds in their rearview mirror with some church or some pastor or some ministry. And I, for a long time, if I'm honest, I despise that because I, I don't know why, but I, I didn't set out to start a church for other church people. I, I set up to start a church for people who don't go to church. And, and there are people, there's lots of people who, who never went to church and, and kind of stopped going to church that, that come to our church, and, and that's fine. I, but I didn't realize until a couple of years ago what God was doing, is that f- what God wants to do through you, He first often has to do in you. And what God was doing was He was allowing Shari and I to be wounded and hurt through church leadership so that we would never do that to others. And it's been crazy to see um, through the wounds of Christ, uh, by his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. But often the the finished work uh, of Christ has often flowed through our wounds to go and heal the wounds of other people who have come up to our fellowship and have just said, I have finally found a safe place to worship the Lord. I I count it joy um, because I am not by nature a compassionate, sympathetic, or empathetic person. Ask anyone who knows me, those those three words no one would use to describe me. But when people come into our church and they are wounded or they're wandering or they're wondering about the faith because they had a very horrific, traumatic experience with a pastor who was a master manipulator or a control freak or or whatever, I feel in my heart so much compassion and empathy and sympathy because I've been there. I know the pain. I know the trauma. I know having to go to counselors for years and paying thousands of dollars out of pocket to go and get help from somebody um, else outside of the church because the church who's supposed to be helping is actually hurting. I count it joy now because I see what God um, was up to in that. Almost, I, almost all the people who have been a part of our church recently have a similar story. It's crazy, but, but that's what God's doing. So I, I, I can look back in the rearview mirror and say, oh man, I had no idea that God was developing my character, that he was setting into core, uh, he was setting kind of core convictions in me. He was um, kind of creating a very clear vision in me on how to handle myself and how to lead. Now I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I'll tell you this, um, more than anything, I want people to feel the blessing of God when they're around me, when they're around our church. And I am very, I'm hyper aware of not putting burdens on people, not being a bully. I count it joy because I can see uh, ministries and master manipulators um, a mile away. I can smell a wolf in sheep's clothing in Mali. God has given me, in, in the pain, God has given me um, an, a massive amount of discernment. That's his gift. 
to help protect me, my family, our church body. I can see those people a mile, and there's a lot of them, unfortunately, but I count it joy. I know that God was using those situations to grow me up. Uh, I wish there was ways where I could have let more of the will of God come in. I wonder how much more I could have grown in that. Um, I, I wonder how things might have been a little bit different had I asked God for wisdom on how to handle these situations. Um, but we all have situations like that. Now, I, I want to um, offer uh, th- perhaps three different ways you can tease this out. Um, first, the past, just like I shared. It, it took me about a decade um, to, that had passed before I could look back at the past and, and really kind of mine and process what God was doing in that pain. It is so hard. It takes great courage. It probably takes some therapist and some really skilled, Christ-led, spirit-led counselors who know how to handle the soul with care. Um, it takes trusted friends who will listen, not give advice, who will pray for you. Um, it's hard work. It is hard work. If, if you have something in the rearview mirror that is so painful that you don't even want to go there, I'd say one thing, that's okay. No shame in that. The other thing I'd ask you to consider is if you have at all uh, benefited from the, the health and the gentleness and the love and the healing ministry of the Lord through our church, I want you to recognize that that comes in some part because I have been courageous to do the deep work over many years to get freedom and to be set free from uh, painful and traumatic situations. It's painful, it's hard, I know, I empathize. But there is often joy and freedom and massive healing for others through your story. Just consider that. So that's the past. Is there stuff in your past that maybe God is uh, saying now might be the time to begin to process that. And maybe it's not the time. Maybe it's not the time. That's fine. But, but there, it may be the time. The present is, is one way you can apply this stuff. Um, we are in the middle of a global crisis. We all have various ways that we are suffering. Um, how might you um, put into practice the count, know, let, ask right now? Third, in the future. Here's the deal. When I talk to people who are suffering, often they're not equipped to deal with it because they haven't um, done the equipping work um, when times are good. Uh, Right now, you have the opportunity to take this and uh, put it in your playbook, so to speak, and just remember, okay, when, when the stuff hits the fan at some point in life, whether that's this afternoon or next week or next year or whatever, remember, you can go to James 1, and there are these four things you can do. You can count it joy. You can know that God is at work. You can um, let the will of God supersede your will. You can pray and ask him for wisdom on what to do. Put that in your playbook. Now, here's the gospel message. This is what Jesus did for us. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, here it is, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He counted it joy. He knew that God was at work. He let the will of God come. He said, not my will, your will be done. He continually lived in dependence on the Father, asking the Father what to do next. And because of that, we have the reality of the gospel message that he put uh, with a joy set before him, set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards Golgotha for you and for me. There's nothing that we could ever do to make him love us more. He's loved us perfectly. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Ooh, God, I feel the weight of this. Even now, Lord, I feel the feelings and the emotions of uh, deep pain, loss, trauma, broken dreams, failed expectations, toxic relationship, toxic relationships. Well, I sense the hurt that comes from family dynamics, from the workplace, from unhealthy uh, leaders and bosses, from ministries, from, from pastors who are, are toxic and unhealthy and unaccountable, from, from shepherds who function as wolves instead of shepherds who lay their lives down. Pain from lies and half-truths and manipulation and physical, sexual abuse, emotional, relational, verbal abuse. From the pain of sickness and health, and the issues inside of our bodies from the economic pain. Lord, we thank you that you are no stranger to pain. You are no stranger to suffering. And that you have given us the perfect model to count it all joy, to change the camera angle, to see things from your perspective, to be like Joseph in Genesis 50, to say in the face of people who have dramatically betrayed and wounded us, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Lord, we pray for your help. I ask for a fresh measure of your Holy Spirit to be poured out on everyone right now and especially those who are brokenhearted, who are mourning, who are weeping, who are depressed, who are anxious, who are afraid. But I pray you would exchange beauty for our ashes, joy for the heaviness, dancing for the mourning. God, we know you are near to the brokenhearted and you bind up the brokenhearted. We need you, Holy Spirit. Come and be our comforter. And where we need courage to do the deep work, God, I ask that you would give us that gift of courage, of boldness, 
to know that even in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us and that you have a table, a banquet that you are preparing, that you have prepared in the presence of our enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. We need you now more than ever, Jesus. We pray for our nation, for our government, for our leaders, for the healthcare professionals, for first responders, Lord, for everyone on the front lines. We need your wisdom on how uh, and what to do, how to live and what to do in this season, Lord. Lord, set us free from the ridiculousness of all the politics. Give us wisdom, Lord. Wake our nation up. Wake our world up. Lord, let us see things as you see them. It's in Christ's name we pray.